Well, it is a joy to be with you today. Uh, Greetings to all the Longhorns out there, but a special howdy to all the Aggie families in the room. Um, yeah, this, uh, this, is, this is my first time wearing a robe, um, so uh, I think you have to be an ordained minister to actually have a robe that fits you. So, uh, so, um, but if I'm slower, if I trip, you know why. But it really is a joy to be here, and it's so, I'm so excited to meet you after the service. If you have any connection to Texas A&M at all, please meet me afterward. I'd love to say hello. And as we begin this morning, I want all of us to consider a question as we approach our passage. If someone were to ask you today, like, what is the biggest problem you have faced or are facing in your life right now? What would you say? Like, I can imagine in a room this size with this amount of people, we would include probably things like loss of a loved one, right? Sickness, cancer, serious financial debt a child who won't talk to us anymore, chronic pain, an addiction or sin pattern that you just can't shake, disability, depression, a longing to be married. My follow-up question to that would be, where do you take these, various re- these, these very real and serious problems in your life? What solution are we looking for to fix these immediate and serious needs in our life? When we encounter Jesus today in our passage, the bad news that Mark holds out for us and reveals to us is that our primary problem is actually a lot worse than we realize. We've underestimated our deepest need. But the triumphant and good news is that the solution to our greatest problem has been accomplished by our greater healer, Jesus Christ. This story is beautifully written with a lot of unexpected twists and turns that produce a reaction of astonishment and shock in the characters in this episode. So we're going to look at, we're going to consider three surprises in the progression of our passage. First, in verses 1 through 5, Jesus' surprising healing. In verses 6 through 11, the scribes' surprising questions. And lastly, in verse 12, the crowd's surprising worship. So Jesus' surprising healing, the scribes' surprising questions, and the crowd's surprising worship. So first, verses 1 through 5, Jesus' surprising healing. Mark narrates this opening scene by saying that it had been reported that Jesus was was back in Capernaum. Right? They didn't have Twitter and they couldn't share their location on Google Maps. But news spread quickly throughout the villages and towns in Galilee. And there's no doubt that word about, a popularity about Jesus' healing and his casting out of demons and his teaching was spreading. So much so that Mark tells us that this home where Jesus was preaching the word was so packed that people were spilling out of the doorway. There are fire violation codes all over this passage. right? And it's important to note that in this house on that day, it was filled with all different kinds of people. All the way from scribes and religious leaders, all the way down to common, ordinary fishermen. And Mark gives us these details to introduce us to five friends, four of whom are on a mission to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And he tells us, instead of getting up when they see the crowded, when they see the crowded doorway, they go up, up, up the stairs on top of the roof. See, everything they had heard about this man named Jesus was that he could actually heal. So they started digging. And this wasn't like a Tom Cruise Mission Impossible scene where the spy quietly repels down. No, this was a loud, disturbing demolition process. 
right? The typical first century Jewish roof was built out of a series of wooden beams and layered with branches and clay and, and plastered mud. So there's no doubt that mud and dirt and branches would have been falling all over these people underneath them. It would definitely have caused a scene and a very awkward conversation for the homeowner after this incident, right? But what makes this episode of Jesus' healing surprising? Try to imagine yourself in the sandals of these four men on this roof that day, right? You've spent your time and energy to bring your paralyzed friend to this man named Jesus, You've interrupted him while he preaches, and you've just created a demolition site in this homeowner's roof. And as you're lowering your paralytic friend down to the feet of this Jewish man, you have to be thinking to yourself, as I'm sure they were, like, this better be worth it. Now imagine yourself as the paralyzed man, helplessly being lowered for all to see. Your entire life, you've been a prisoner in your own body and in your own bed, not having the ability to run or to swim or to hike, or to wake up and stand up and get out of bed in the morning? How long have you been identified your entire life as the paralytic? And here at last, you are placed before Jesus, a man that, whom you've heard has the power to heal you. And the moment of truth, certainly healing is about to come. And Jesus looks up at your friends and looks down at you and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Like, that's it? <laughs> Like, really? Like, can you, can you imagine the confusion and the disappointment racing through the minds of, these, of this paralyzed man and the minds of his friends? Like, Jesus, do you not see the immediate need here? Do you not see him lying on this bed? Do you not know why we came to you? Was this fake news? Is this man unable to heal? What's forgiveness when your legs don't work? Like, how often in our own pain have we been, tempt- have we been tempted to wonder the same thing? with disabilities and heartaches in our home, with chronic pain in our bodies, with death and violence, with hobbled hopes and drooping spirits, we wonder why our Messiah does not just heal us and heal our loved ones and our suffering. Why doesn't he just take it away? Nancy Guthrie, a wife and mother, who's a well-known author, who's written some great works on suffering, tragically lost both of her children, Gabe and Hope, to a fatal genetic syndrome after they were born. And she did an interview with the Gospel Coalition on ministering to people in their suffering. And she said, one of the best things that we can do is pray. And she said, not only pray that God would remove the suffering or lighten the load, which are good and right things to pray for. But she said, instead of stopping there, we should pray that God would accomplish a great work through our suffering and our loved ones' suffering. She uses the example of John 9, which is the story of Jesus healing the blind man. And the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, like, whose fault was this? His, his sin or his parents' sin that he was blind? And Jesus says, neither. It was neither his sin nor his parents' sin. But this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, one of the most, most helpful ways to pray for one another in our suffering is that God would accomplish a great work through us and in us. Because even though we may not ever know why the, the why behind our suffering in this life, the pattern we find all throughout Scripture is that God promises that He will always use the suffering of His people for His good purposes. And our prayers should reflect that for one another. Because you see, the, the greatest of all works was accomplished on this day. Why? 
Because the most primary need for the paralytic man was not the revival of his limbs, but the renewal of his heart. Because in that moment, Jesus gave him something better, something eternal, something that no man or any physical matter could ever take away from him. He didn't primarily need strengthened legs. He needed a strengthened heart, a heart that was reconciled to God, a heart that was forgiven, a heart that heard God call him son. The same heart that we need today. You see, even if this story ended here at verse 5, and I was to pray and, and close, like even if this, was, this man was to go home that day trapped in the same prison of a body, Jesus' words that his many sins have been forgiven was still enough to make him sing a thousand lifetimes. And it begs the question this morning, like where is your joy rooted? Like is our joy rooted in our abilities, in our health, in our comfort, in our beauty? Or on the opposite end, is it swallowed up by our sufferings? See, Christian, if you're in Christ, Christ this morning, your name is written in heaven. This is the most central plotline plot of all of Scripture, is that Christ came for the salvation of, of His people. He came to make dead hearts alive in Him. He came to forgive sinners and declare them righteous before God. And it's this exact reason why the scribes are so surprised, which leads us to our next point. Because in verses 6 through 11, Jesus' declaration of forgiveness leaves the religious leaders in astonishment. See, what began as a heartwarming he healing suddenly turns into a heated conversation over religious authority. The theological alarm bells would have been ringing in the minds of the scribes. And that's exactly what the text tells us. They question in their hearts, this guy's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And before we too quickly like villainize the, the scribes, it needs to be said that yes, they are wrong, but they are also very right. How can that be? See, the scribes are wrong that Jesus is blaspheming, but they are spot on that it is God alone who forgives sins. So what does this say about who Jesus is? He is God. He is both God and man. Mark himself, our author, gives the reader evidence because the text says that Jesus knew what the scribes questioned in their hearts. It's impossible for a man to know what another man is thinking, but nothing is impossible for God. Mark himself is claiming that Jesus is God. But then Jesus himself takes the argument one stage further. He addresses the scribes and says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and go home? Like we all know on the surface, of course it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because that's something that's invisible and impossible to disprove. But it's harder to say, take up your bed and walk. Because if the man doesn't get up, then it proves that you don't have the authority to heal. So how does Jesus verify his authority and identity? He looks at the scribes and says, watch this. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus turns to the paralytic and says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately the man picks up his bed and walks out. See, Jesus did go on to heal this man's legs. And in doing so, he confirms that what he says is true, and he proved himself to be God, that he has the authority to both heal and forgive. And it is true this morning that Jesus does not mend the bodies of all of his children in this age, but he promises that he will in the next. And uh, in 1967, Johnny Erickson Tata 
dove into shallow water and broke her neck and became a quadriplegic. And in 1979, she started her disability ministry called Johnny and Friends, which is a global ministry that has reached millions of people touched by disability. And after some time of her accident, a reporter came up to Johnny and said, hey, like, Johnny, can I just follow you around for a week and just see, like, observe what you do day to day? And Johnny was like, sure, you can do that. That sounds good. And it's important to note that before her accident, Johnny enjoyed all the same things that a normal 17-year-old would. She loved to run and to play sports. But before her accident, she especially loved to ride horses. And one afternoon, her and the reporter went to a barn to watch some people ride horses. And they were out there all afternoon, and Johnny just sat next to this fence post and just watched people ride back and forth, back and forth in these horses. And it had been like a couple of hours. And the reporter finally mustered up the courage and walked up to Johnny and said, like, Johnny, why do you do this to yourself? Like, this must be torture. Like, why do you, peep, why do you watch people uh, ride all day? And she looked up at him and said, because I don't want to forget how. Because I know one day that I'll ride again. And whether there will be horses in heaven or not, the point is, is that what Johnny was doing is that she's leaning into the resurrection. That because Jesus has primarily and ultimately forgiven her of her sins by dying on the cross and defeating death by his resurrecting from the grave, she knows that her, one day her body will be made new and fully restored. That because Christ has, has healed her spiritual paralysis of her heart, he will one day completely heal her physical paralysis. And one day she will ride again. You see, the gospel irony of this passage is that on that day, every scribe, every disciple, every man, every child... And every person on that roof and in that home are in just as much desperate need of Jesus as the man paralyzed laying on his mat. And so are you and me. No matter how much knowledge you may have, or no matter how many degrees may be hanging on your wall, no matter how polished you may be or good you are with people, no matter if you're 8 years old or you're 80 years old, or if you're an Aggie or a Longhorn, your greatest need this morning is to receive And hear the forgiveness that Jesus offers in his gospel. And this morning, if you have received his grace and forgiveness, then the only proper response is for you to join the crowd in surprising worship. And this leads us to our last point. Because Mark concludes this story in verse 12 with once again a surprising reaction, a wonderful astonishment from the crowd. They marvel at Jesus' forgiveness and healing. The text says that they glorify God. They worshiped him. Why? Because worship is the only proper response to undeserved forgiveness. You see, it wasn't the quality or the quantity of these, men, of the, these friends' faith that they had in themselves to produce forgiveness in their paralytic friend that day. From everything the text indicates, they were bringing him, their friend for hit physical healing. But you see, it was who they placed their faith in that day, the object of their faith, namely Jesus himself. That's the beauty of God's forgiveness, that as sinners who were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were never looking for God's forgiveness, but he gave it to us only by his free grace alone. It's like, when was the last time that you were surprised by your salvation? Because when people look at you and me, they should say, like, really? Like, you're a Christian? 
And our response should be, I know, right? That's amazing (laughs) that God would save someone as wretched as me because there's nothing in myself that could ever earn God's forgiveness. But God called me to himself only by his free grace alone. Isn't he amazing? You know, we, we opened with some examples of the biggest problems we're facing in our life right now and the solution to these very, very serious and immediate needs in, in our life. And for some of you this morning, yes, God may be using severe trials in your life to show you how truly helpless and in need you are of Him. Because some of these problems may be serving as a check engine light that is warning you of a much deeper problem under the hood of your heart. And before the door of grace is closed, I ask that He would unroof the hardness of your heart. And that you would come to him and you would receive his forgiveness, which no money can buy, no good deeds can earn, and no suffering can steal. So that one day, yes, you would be resurrected with him without paralyzed bodies, without paralyzed affections, and without paralyzed minds. And for others of you beaten by the violent winds of this life and worn and downtrodden and weary this morning, I want you to hear the words from an old theologian. A few more years of watching and praying, a few more tossings on the sea of this world, a few more deaths and changes, a few more winters and summers, and all will be over. And we shall have fought our last battle and shall need to fight no more. See, Christian, as we lie on the floor, he whispers, my child, your sins are forgiven. Yet soon enough, we will hear, rise, my child, and enter the joy of your master. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those downtrodden by the brokenness of this world this morning, that we would be reminded again today that you have removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. That because of your life, death, and resurrection, I pray that you would help all of us to seize upon the hope that one day we will be with you forever, with unparalyzed souls and unparalyzed bodies, I ask by your grace that you would restore to us again the joy of our salvation that comes through the forgiveness of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.